0: That's Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Examining the rise and fall of empires and Wondering which will fall next is a question that excites the curiosity and worries of people in every generation. The major example that is often looked to with great significance and interest is the fall of the Roman Empire, whose decline has been explained in numerous ways, though the decisive factor remains elusive. Yet, with each passing year, new technologies emerge and methods of study are expanded to examine things like ice cores, DNA, pollution, and pandemics to allow the scope of the decline of the Roman Empire to broaden and for a fuller picture to emerge. The topic of this episode is the book New Rome, The Empire in the East by Dr. Paul Stevenson. Dr. Paul Stevenson is a historian of late antiquity, and is also the author of Constantine, Roman Emperor, Christian Victor. In this conversation, we discuss New Rome, out now from Harvard Press. I enjoyed this conversation tremendously, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I liked having it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Paul Stevenson thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience and listeners however you see fit.
2: Sure thank you. Um, I'm Paul Stevenson I'm originally English although I now live and work in the USA. Um, I've held a number of academic posts in a number of countries the UK, uh, the Netherlands, uh, the USA. And um, in the last few years, I've been enjoying a number of research fellowships at the Metropolitan Museum of Art at Princeton University at uh, Dunbarton Oaks. And currently, I'm a Titus Fellow in Classics at the University of Cincinnati. So um, I'm enjoying some research time and, and enjoying talking to people about my research right now. Thank
1: you. Excellent. Um, What are some of your collected like? What are some of your other uh, books or works that people might be able to find besides the one we're out going to be discussing today? Is there any other things that you've written over the years that you wanted to highlight before we get started?
2: Um, I've tried to spend some of my time over the last thirty years that I've been uh, writing academic books, writing slightly less um, monographic work. It's it's challenging because if one is an academic historian, writing. I don't want to write down to people. So I don't like to call anything that I write a popular book. I think that mm-hmm. actually, if you're interested in history, then reading a book is always challenging and we always learn a great deal. Of course, I read for every book that I write, I probably have to read uh, several thousand books and, and many more articles. So I love to read and I love to read in all registers. And so I wouldn't say that I've written um any books that are aimed at a particular audience but let's say my, my most popular book to date that the book which has sold the most and has garnered the most reviews on amazon and other places where people might have read it, uh, is a, a book on constantine and his age called constantine um, roman emperor unconquered victor or roman emperor christian victor in its u.s edition um and uh that Uh, is still selling modestly well, although there are perhaps a thousand competitors now that have appeared since, which address the reign and and period of the Emperor Constantine. Um, I also wrote a a large collection, or edited a large collection called The Byzantine World, where I brought together essays by uh, a lot of my colleagues. And that um, I'm still quite pleased with, even though it's now 10 years old, because it does give a kind of broad introduction to the Byzantine world um, from around 700 to 1453. And then, of course, my latest book that we're talking about addresses the period immediately before that and immediately after Constantine, which is looking at the period 395 to 700. So kind of filling in the gap between those two other works.
1: Wonderful. Well, let's talk about that book. The new book is New Rome, The Empire in the East, out now from Belknap and Harvard Press. And I'm wondering if you can just sort of talk to me about the origin of this Very impressive book that I've been digging through for the last couple of weeks.
2: Well, thank you. Yes, I mean, it it has a number of origins as all books do. But one of the origins is that a number of years ago, uh, a friend of mine was writing for a series um, and uh, nominated me as someone who might be good at writing about the thing that I've just written. Um, and that was more than 10 years ago, and I was contacted by the press, and, and I said, that sounds like a great idea, and then, of course, I proceeded to do a lot of other things over those 10 <laughs> years, Yeah. Um, but, but accumulated a lot of information, and I wasn't ready to write this book 10 years ago, and I don't think the scholarship was ready for me to write the book in the way that it has been written, since almost all of the references in, in the work that Anyone would find if they were able to get hold of it from a library or to buy it, you would find that the vast majority of references, certainly to the scientific literature, date from after 2011, which was the date at which I was uh, due to commence the writing. Um, And so I'm very pleased that it's taken me this long, even though, of course, people at the press were slightly less pleased that it had taken 11 years to uh, bring a book to uh, to publication.
1: Mm. Well, I do get the impression that this book is a bit different than a lot of the other history books about the region because of the range of disciplines utilized to paint a fuller picture, which you briefly touch on in the acknowledgements. And I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about what you set out to do with this book to make it stand a bit apart from other works discussing the Roman Empire and Constantinople. What is this book's, uh, how how did you set this up and work on this to set it apart a bit from the others out there?
2: Well, I wrote the book that I wanted to write about the the latest scholarship, some of the scholarship that I I discovered in in beginning to write this book was absolutely a revelation. It was a revelation to me that I I knew nothing about so much of this material. Having studied um, the later Roman world for some, well, I was fortunate enough to study Latin and Greek at school. So having studied these things since I was 12 years old, that's now 40 years ago, there was so much information and material there that I had no idea about. And it was absolutely fascinating to me. And I wanted to therefore bring it in and and present it to a broader audience who wouldn't necessarily have access to all of these scientific journals and also perhaps wouldn't have the time and patience uh, to work through the arguments as they're presented in uh, scientific journals. And by scientific journals, I don't just mean historical sciences or political sciences or social sciences, but the hard sciences, natural sciences, biological sciences, bioarchaeology, um, paleo um, environmental studies and, and looking at the environmental record of the past. And so these are the things that I I became absolutely compelled by in doing the research for the book, and much of that material is very, very recent, and and everything is of course ongoing. So a good deal of what I've written uh, will remain contingent. Although I think uh, the broad outlines of what I've written are accurate, Um, and what I do think will happen is that as more and more research is done, it will broaden the picture that I tried to sketch, and people who are interested in. Uh, an introduction to this, could look at my book, and then they could follow up on some of the references and keep their eyes open for scientific literature as it's published in these areas and and broaden and deepen their own knowledge.
1: Wonderful. You know, and something that's really fabulous about this book to me is that you make clear reference to how technology is different now than when a lot of the other volumes of history from this time period um, were written. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about, before we get into the actual content of the book, uh, tell me about some of the new technology that is available to historians such as yourself, who are writing about these long ago times, such as antiquity, that are helping the field grow and develop. Tell me how you're utilizing the, the technology of today.
2: Well, there are just there are questions we can now ask that we couldn't have asked and, and historians and classicists in the past couldn't have asked because they simply couldn't have sought an answer to those questions. So they couldn't have known how, what the weather and climate was like in the Roman Empire, other than if there were a few references in written sources to, uh, you know, bad years when the sun didn't shine, when there was very little rain and famine ensued. And now we can put that written record together. With the environmental record, the paleo environment, we can look at sediment records taken from lake beds or uh, ice records taken from ice cores in Greenland and, 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 and other areas where ice has preserved pollution records. And we can see how the climate would have been. And we can also see major events like volcanic eruptions in those records. We can see evidence in lake beds and in ice records for The smelting of coins in huge numbers, the smelting of metals for the minting of Roman coins in huge amounts, uh, and peaks and troughs in the production and circulation of the Roman silver denarius, for example. All of these things are possible now because scientists are doing research in these areas, which in the past wouldn't have been possible for anyone to write about. Uh, We can look at pollen records and see uh, which parts of the Roman world were being used or under cultivation. We can see what was being grown, the intensity of cultivation how high up mountains crops could be grown, how low down they could be grown, and much of that can be correlated with higher or lower temperatures in the Roman world or greater or lower levels of rainfall and precipitation. So we can effectively, we can make better guesses at quite how many people the Roman economy and Roman agriculture could support. And therefore, we can correlate this with the growth of the Roman Empire and its, the height of its culture and the height of its richness. and its decline as fewer and fewer people can be supported by agriculture can be supported by the amount of food that can be produced in the Roman world and the lands under cultivation. So all of this is brand new material that we couldn't, the questions that couldn't be asked before.
1: That is wonderful. Cause you know, whenever I think about history, you say, Oh, why would people want to write about this? So many books are out there already about this, but then you think about the development of new, you know, climate and research technologies and working in an interdisciplinary manner seems to be kind of your forte. I mean, do you kind of see yourself as somebody who's working within multiple different disciplines of scholarship in your work?
2: I'm I very lucky to have worked at a number of institutions over the last seven or eight to 10 years and to have met a huge number of scholars who have introduced me to these fields and, and explain their research to me and, and help me understand what they're doing and put me in touch with their networks and allowed me to think about and to write about the things that I'm in expert in. Because really, in the, my book is a synthesis of the great scholarship and research of others. I don't make any claims to have done the research myself in the areas that i just explained to you. Mm-hmm. And what I have done is to read widely and talk widely and to, as you say, integrate myself in the networks of people who are doing this fantastic research and to learn from them. And hopefully, therefore, to communicate some of their great findings to people who are willing to read a, a pretty long book about the Roman world.
1: I love it. Well, let's set the stage for a little bit of geography here um, for people out there who may not know much about you know, the, the field of work that you work in. I'm wondering if you can just kind of delineate what are the modern day boundaries of what you feature in the book itself? What part of the world are we talking about here?
2: Well, the, the scope of the book ranges from the north of Britain. Um, to the Mesopotamian world and beyond, all the way through what is currently Afghanistan, down into North Africa, and across the North African world from Egypt all the way uh, to modern Tunisia and Algeria through what one would call the Pillars of Hercules, over to Spain and beyond. Um, And so it ranges very widely, but the core of the the study is the Eastern Mediterranean world, principally um, the great cities of the Eastern Mediterranean, which would include Antioch and Alexandria and Carthage, uh, somewhat more to the west in the Mediterranean, and Rome itself and Milan, but all of them centered increasingly in the period that I study on the city of Constantinople, which is the new Rome of the title of the book.
1: Excellent, yes, and I'm glad that you differentiated that for me, the Rome of Italy versus the new Rome of the title of the book, because you know, it, it's really interesting to see how the empire shifts over time and how Constantinople takes on a new meaning. Um, and you know, I have a, a passage of the book here that feels relevant, um, which I really loved and I highlighted vigorously. It says on page on page ninety four, it says how Constantinople became first prominent, then ascendant, and finally the empire's dominant city is central to our history constantinople was founded on the site of byzantium as the victory city of constantinople the great following his defeat in ad 324 of his last imperial rival licinius constantinople was not conceived as a new christian capital to replace rome but that is what it became achieving a civic status that surpassed all other cities you know and then earlier in the book you write about the time scope of the book the 395 to 700 and can you tell me a little bit about the the ages uh, that happen within the scope of the book, because you have it really nicely uh, organized within the book. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the ages themselves.
2: Yeah. Well, the book begins uh, ostensibly in 395, although I do give a little bit of background before that. 395 is chosen because that's the date at which um, people believe the empire of Rome was split into two, west and east. I, I, I problematize that a little in the book at the beginning, but I think it's solid uh, to say that uh, from 395, Eastern Roman emperors were principally based in Constantinople, the new Rome, and were no longer based in the city of Rome itself. The the dominant emperor of the Roman world was the Eastern emperor from that period and onwards. And Rome itself, of course, famously was sacked in 410 and fell in 476 uh, to Goths. Um, Now, there were still interest in maintaining close relations with the Western Roman Empire, but the Eastern Roman Empire from that period onwards is absolutely dominant uh, in Roman thought, but more particularly Constantinople comes to dominate the other cities of the Eastern world because the emperor is based there. And so in in, in the the way that I break down the central section of the book is into these periods based on reigns, and the book is organized in three uh, parts. Um, The first part uh, addresses what I like to think of as the deep background uh, and how people lived at the beginning and through the period that's under study. Um, this is where I do the, um, the the heavy lifting for the environmental and, and pollution records. And uh, the, if one wants to get a taste of that, I should say that um, an excerpt from the first part of the book has just been published in Lapham's quarterly. So one can look at that free online, read 20 pages or so of the book about Absolutely. pollution Yeah,
1: I saw, I saw that on Harvard's site. That was really great. Great. Um, And so that's the first part. The second part of the book is the
2: political narrative, which I didn't want to ignore. And I realized that that, that people have read plenty of political narratives if they're interested in the Roman world. But emperors and art and things that happened, I think still matter in history. And so I wanted to give my take on that. And that's where I break it down into periods. And then the third part of the book is looking from the year 700 at how the world had changed, looking at settlement patterns, how cities had survived or hadn't survived, how they'd been transformed, Uh, looking at how people conceived of their world and how they thought of it as an apocalyptic landscape in many ways because of the rise of Islam and the triumph of this new religion. And then finally, I have a a chapter summarizing uh, the perceptions of the emperors that they had of themselves and and that people had of them and how this manifests itself in uh, coins and in art and in other ways in the later world. And so the central section of the book which is the political narrative, the politics part of the book, is broken down into the Theodosian age, which is the age of the Theodosian emperors, uh, principally Theodosius II. And uh, then secondly, we have, of course, the age of Justinian, uh, which is one of the great ages of of Roman history that people are familiar with through the work of Procopius, and there's much more that could be said there. And I also like to think of the the age of the Heraclians, which is the the dynasty uh, which saw um, the rise of Heraclius from North Africa, his coming to power in Constantinople, and then his fight to, against the forces of the Persian Empire, which a fight which came to the brink of, of destroying the Roman Empire, but in the end, which was won, only to find the rise of Islam right there um, at, at the very end of Heraclius' reign and how his heirs uh, fight against the Arab forces uh, through to the year 700. So it's broken down in, in that way.
1: You know, when the book explains how the Eastern Empire transforms into Byzantium as well, I featured Byzantium on the podcast a couple of times over the years, but I'm wondering what you want everybody listening to know about that transformation of how it becomes Byzantium.
2: Well, unlike many in in the field, uh, I don't have a real problem with using the term Byzantium, Uh, although it's a term of art if you... uh, understand that it wasn't something that the people of Constantinople typically called themselves, they didn't call themselves Byzantines, other than occasionally to refer to the fact that they came from a city which previously had been called Byzantium. Um, But Byzantium is a different thing, it's really the Eastern Roman Empire that continues institutionally into what we have typically called the medieval period or the Middle Ages. So I like to think of Byzantium as the empire as it was from around the year 700 through to, let's say, the sack of Constantinople by the Fourth Crusade in 1204. And then after that, uh, it was transformed again through to its sack again by the Ottoman Turks in 1453. So perhaps there are two broad periods or three broad periods of Byzantine history, uh, beginning in 700 and ending in 1453. And so my effort in this book, as someone who has written on Byzantium extensively for much of my career, was to get to know better myself and to communicate to others better, What came immediately before that thing that we understand to be Byzantium? And what is it that led to Byzantium to be something quite different to the Roman world? Now, Anthony Caldellus, a close friend and colleague of mine, has argued very much for continuity, institutional and cultural continuity between the Roman Empire and the world that uh, he is less reluctant uh, than many to call Byzantium, but still uh, perhaps considers to be the Roman Empire. Um, and there are others who absolutely now refuse to use the word Byzantium because it wasn't something that explains how the people of Byzantium understood themselves. And um, I would fall somewhere in between and say, well, actually, if it helps us as, as um, moderns to understand that there were differences between this world and the one that went before, then it's a term that we can use, but we should use it carefully.
1: I love that you brought up uh, Anthony Caldello's because he was on the show when Roman Land came out, and that's one of my most all-time popular episodes. So great little uh, segue from from that episode to this episode. I love when those little connections pop up. You know,
2: well, Anthony is a great historian. He's probably, I mean, his work is is revolutionary in the field, and it's it's profoundly erudite, but also very
1: very accessible. I love it. Well, let's dive into a little bit more content. I want to discuss climate with you. You write interestingly about solar activity early in the book, and I am so curious to hear some thoughts from you about what you call a period of declining solar irradiation and how that matters in the context of the years of the study and what that means for the flourishing or decline of the empire. I'm just dying to hear some more about this.
2: Well, it's hard, to, it's hard to, to say that there's a direct correlation, but there, is, there are so many things that would lead one to suspect that a declining period of sunlight would have an impact on any society. So would, one could imagine that we went through a period of 300 years uh, from now into the future when each year, increasingly, there was less sunlight and therefore uh, there was less ability to grow things Um, and therefore populations, smaller populations increasingly, could only be supported by what was produced by the land, let's say that the area in which uh, certain crops could be cultivated shrank because they couldn't be grown in areas that were now far colder. So the opposite of global warming, if you will, global cooling, because of the Hmm. the absence of irradiation uh, reaching the earth, then one would imagine that there would be consequences. And one of the tasks of uh, scientific uh, historians or historical scientists is to look at Uh, exactly what was happening and then try to draw conclusions from that and the challenge is coming up with conclusions that are acceptable um, but at the same time accepting the challenge I think is important and necessary because we can now say so many new and different things and so the amount of radiation from the sun that reaches the earth is absolutely fundamental in understanding um, how people could live in that world and how their lives might change over time. And it therefore correlates well with other patterns that we can see in in patterns of production and consumption, but also of course, uh, the things relating to pollen records that uh, I referred to just a short time ago. Having said that, um, it's very, very difficult to jump from those observations to the notion that um, less sunlight led to the collapse of the Roman empire and the rise of Islam, because after all, why would Islam rise in the same circumstances in which uh, the Roman Empire couldn't survive, for example, or the Persian Empire couldn't survive. So it's much more problematic uh, than a simple cause and effect, but it has a profound impact upon the way that this world is transformed that hitherto people couldn't talk about and therefore uh, didn't talk about.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Wonderful. Well, you know, and something else that you talk about in the book is how this time period is the start of our current period that we're living through the Anthropocene due to heavy metal contaminations in the soil that won't be seen again at Roman levels for another thousand years after when your book ends and this is absolutely amazing, and I'm so curious about your research into metallurgy within the context of the the time period as well, and uh, you know some of your favorite discoveries about all of all of those things. Well, if, if one
2: understands the Anthropocene to be the period in which the the Earth itself began to be transformed by human activity then there's, there can be surely no doubt that the Romans were the first people to truly pollute the earth in a manner which was unprecedented to that point and therefore to change the way that the very soil of the earth uh, was uh, constituted, that it was replete with pollution for the first time, that it was so full of lead pollution that um, 2,000 years later, this can be detected in dangerous levels in certain places and that traces of this are preserved thousands of miles away in in ice cores in in Greenland, for example, thousands of miles from anywhere where lead smelting was taking place. So it's clear that dangerous things were taking place at a level and a scale that hadn't been seen before in any history, in any period of the world. And, And there are other cultures, of course, that were engaging in metallurgy at this time, but nothing... Uh, is reflected in the environmental record in the same way and on the same scale as what the Romans were doing uh, at the beginning of the period. And so they were using metals in such abundance and they were principally uh, smelting uh, this uh, lead sulfide ore, uh, which was producing massive amounts of lead pollution. They were principally uh, smelting it in order to get the silver, which is also present in Ghislaine and lead sulfide. And to use that for the minting of the silver denarius, which was, of course, the principal currency of the High Roman Empire. Mm. Uh, but they were also using the lead that was produced in huge amounts. There's a strong argument that Britannia, the the, the province of Britain, uh, was conquered uh, principally for its mineral reserves. And there's also some sense that the Romans were disappointed when they discovered that the galena, the lead sulfide ore or in um, in Britain, didn't really have very much silver in it at all. But it did have a lot of lead. And that lead was used in huge amounts throughout the Roman world. And so lead from the Mendips and from the Pennines Hills in Western and and Central England uh, were being brought all the way to Rome itself or even further afield to um, uh, what is now Israel and Lebanon, Palestine, uh, to make pipes and other things to carry water. But lead wasn't just being used to make water pipes, which is famously uh, how people think the Romans poisoned themselves, Mm. Uh, but it was being used to make. Thousands of different things because it was such a a flexible material. It melted uh, at a low temperature. It could be used and reused in abundance. And it had uh, properties which meant, of course, that it could repel water or protect uh, uh, buildings from water penetration. It could be melted to hold things together. It could be melted down and mixed with other metals to make them heavier. And it could be used um, in all sorts of contexts where other metals would rust or corrode. And so, uh, lead was ubiquitous in the Roman world. It was the plastic of its age. And uh, the the making and reuse of lead throughout the Roman world for hundreds of years has left an enormous environment, must have had an enormous environmental impact then. And it's left a a very clear record for us to uh, detect now.
1: Well, and you also, you know, you're writing in the book about uh, toxicity as well. And you just sort of mentioned that. And I'm wondering if there was any sort of toxicity effects on bodies. I know that you uh, looked a lot into the analysis of bodies and bones and teeth, and I'm wondering what you found there.
2: Yes, I mean, lead poisoning is dangerous, however old you are, but lead is especially dangerous for children, as as people have been well aware for a very long time, hence the banning of lead paint and, of course, the removal of lead from uh, petroleum gasoline products um, in the modern world. And it was only at that time, at the peak of gasoline production with lead in it, that, that lead pollution levels reached a level which they had in the Roman period. Um, and so it's, it, it's quite shocking, of course, for us to realize that the lead that the Romans used was um, doing all sorts of damage to their children and therefore uh, killing their children and killing them prematurely. And it must have done because were, the, the levels were so high. Um, But one of the clearest indications we can find, since so many things could kill one in the pre-modern world, it's very difficult to say lead did it. Um, Nonetheless, we can see that in Britain, for example, um, the pre-Roman population of Neolithic uh, peoples who lived in uh, Britain were about two or three centimetres taller than the Romans. Now, one could say, well, over time, perhaps there were impacts other than lead, which had uh, led to people being shorter. But the Anglo-Saxons, who arrived immediately afterwards in England, were also two or three centimetres shorter. Added to the fact that the Romans were eating far more proteins than anyone who came before them, and certainly as much, if not more, as those who came afterwards, which would lead typically to them being taller, one has to find an explanation for why native Romans, who were still Britons, but living in in, in a Roman environment, and Romans themselves, were two or three centimetres shorter those who came before and afterwards and now we know of course that lead poisoning in childhood leads to stunted growth and so it's eminently possible that the levels of lead pollution in britain for example were leading to the stunting of the growth of the children we can tell this from bones because bones have survived we don't have any soft tissues of course to show us the other damage that lead poisoning could do but we do know that lead could be preserved in the bones of mothers but it would be released during lactation so if a mother is breastfeeding a child she would be releasing the lead pollution from her body into the body of her child we know that lead was uh, replete in the environment and that it would be picked up by honeybees and honeybees apparently um, remove pollutants from flowers twice as effectively as drones and if they're producing honey then they're filling that honey not just with uh, everything else in the local environment whether that be beautiful floral scents but also with lead and the Romans used a lot of honey in weaning children. So it wasn't just breastfeeding young children. Also, when children were being weaned off of milk and, and put onto solid foods, then, then honey was being used. And that honey might be filled not just of botulism, as we fear today, but also with lead. And so there were so many ways that the Romans had contrived unknowingly to pollute their own children, uh, to contaminate their children with lead, that it's, it's, it, it can be quite shocking.
1: Yeah. You know, and you mentioned food a minute ago and nutrition and, you know, just some normal details of people's everyday lives during these times might be interesting to hear a little bit about as well. And you write extensively about food, diet, parasites, and diseases. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on some of the, you know, the the normal things, but also the challenges faced by ordinary people during these periods.
2: Yes. Well, uh, the greatest challenge faced by everybody in the pre-modern world remains the same challenges that people face in in, in in much of the world today which is the inability to get clean water and so clean water um, and uh, normal uh, diseases that are transmitted as an, in the absence of clean water were probably the greatest killer of, of Roman children, diarrhea um, and other. Um, just simple foodborne diseases or diseases transmitted by the failure to uh, observe proper hygiene washing of hands and food preparation etc and we can say this with some authority because we can now detect many of the parasites or, uh, or other infectious diseases in um, septic tanks that have been excavated at various sites in the Roman world so we know that there were public latrines and also private toilets that people were using and people have people have dug through these these middens, these these toilet sites, these septic tanks, and identified a whole range of parasites and other diseases that would have been present in uh, the environment that people were living in. Um, And so we can tell, for example, that um, uh, many many of the diseases that people picked up in the eastern Mediterranean were somewhat different to diseases that were picked up in uh, the uh, northwestern part of Europe. Pick, uh, different forms of parasites were found in, in sites in different parts of the, the Roman world. So much of the parasitical activity in the intestines of people in the Eastern Roman world seemed to relate to um, the the lack of hygiene and preparation of food, rather than, for example, the undercooking of food, mm. which leads to different types of disease.
1: That, access, that lack of access to fresh water and how it's still prevalent today... Reminds me of that saying how the more things change, the more they stay the same, because this is so many hundreds of years ago that we're talking about, and we still face the same challenges. It's kind of remarkable. Do you find that fascinating as well?
2: I do and I, I mean obviously it's 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 not political to say that the world would be a better place if we could eradicate these diseases and there are many ways that we can and, and great charities working on these things all the time one of the, the most insightful things we one can say about the roman world is actually how um much they did care about water supply systems and seeking to provide fresh clean water to their populations the number of aqueducts that one finds of course for the roman world far up numbers anything one finds for other cultures in other periods, and so mm. the supply of fresh water was absolutely essential in the Roman world. And water I, I, I have in the past edited a collection of, of uh, essays on exactly this water culture and fountains in Byzantium, um, uh, which are edited with uh, colleague Brooke Schilling in 2016. And, and it gives a whole series of insights into the importance of water and, and water provision, but also the power of water in the ancient world. What are
1: some major discoveries that you made about medical practice during the time that you feel are worth highlighting? Well,
2: uh, certainly anything that I've written on that is very much due to the work of others. And I, I find it absolutely fascinating. that it's the very things which people increasingly understood uh, to be dangerous, for example, lead might also be considered to be the cure for the problem that had manifested itself. And there was certainly um, a strong sense in the ancient world and therefore still in the late Roman world that um, like can cure like. Um, So effectively a a form of homeopathy, if you will, that a small amount of what, or indeed the the theory of vaccinations, a small amount of what will kill you may also cure you. But in some instances, of course, this was absolutely false. So giving people lead uh, as a medicine in, in any form was never going to do anyone any good. And yet still medical practice determined that lead was a useful thing for people to take for certain ailments or certain conditions. And these are set out by uh, medical authors into the seventh century towards the end of our period, drawing on ancient knowledge. And so there was a lot of very good medical practice. um, And there was a lot of uh, very bad medical practice. Certainly access to good nursing and to medicine was something that could save your life in the Roman world. So Mm. there's no one cannot doubt that good nursing saved lives, for example, in a time of plague uh, that perhaps we'll touch upon. um, People who are nursed will recover. People who are left to suffer alone will not recover. But it's it's more debatable whether medical interventions uh, by doctors would have been beneficial, although some Roman doctors, of course, knew what they were doing. A lot of people following um, ancient medical practice possibly were doing more harm than good.
1: Well, we have, you know, learned, we here in Alive Now, in today's society, we've just had an experience where I think we might understand, like a concept like plague with a bit more clarity. And I'm definitely open to hearing more about that if you have more thoughts to to share on plague itself during that time period.
2: Well, as is fairly well known, the first appearance of of bubonic plague happened at this time in this place. So bubonic plague was first identified in 541 in the port city of Pelusium, just north of Alexandria in, in, um, in Egypt, and within a year had reached Constantinople. And according to written reports of the time throughout the Middle East and in Constantinople itself, tens of thousands of people were dying every day as a consequence of contracting what we understand to be bubonic plague. Um, and then waves of plague would strike every 15 to 17 years over the next two to 300 years before it disappears in the eighth century uh, and doesn't re-emerge until the period of the Black Death in the 14th century. Um, that what we're beginning to understand uh, rather better now through scientific discoveries and excavations and archeology span is quite how difficult, quite how problematic our understanding of this first experience of plague is. The first thing one might say which informs uh, or could be informed by what we have gone through in the last two or three last two years with COVID is uh, that um, diseases mutate pathogens mutate and so it's not that they come back in different waves and strike it's just that they, they adopt slightly different forms and they take advantage of growing immunity or waning immunity um, to uh, strike and so When we say that waves of plague swept over the Roman world every 15 years, what we're really saying is that plague was always there. It was an endemic disease after 542, as COVID is now becoming an endemic disease throughout the world. Um, But um, people had heightened levels of immunity for periods of time after they had suffered and recovered from the plague. And then as new children were born and they hadn't suffered from the plague, and new people moved into cities rather than the countryside, for example, as happened all the time in the Roman world, and they didn't have immunity, then the portion of the population who were not immune to plague became greater than the population that were immune. And therefore, what we now understand to be herd immunity was diminished, and plague would rage up again before, once again, it would die down. Having done its damage, um, people would then recover, and they would gain natural immunity, and the cycle would begin again. So there were no vaccinations, of course other than the, the, the natural immunity that was gained through having had plague and recovered from it.
1: Hmm. Gotcha. Um, you know, something else in the book that jumped out at me is the importance of literacy, inscriptions, documents, legal bureaucracy, graffiti, signage, public notices. Is this unusual for the time period? I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on the prevalence of so, uh, so much literacy within the society.
2: The Roman world was a profoundly literate world. That isn't to say that everybody could read fluently or could write fluently, but there were many, many more people than one finds in later periods or in different parts of the world who had functional literacy. And one could imagine and anticipate that soldiers, for example, uh, in the Roman army could read and write. And we have evidence for their reading and writing, for example, in the vindolanda tablets discovered at Hadrian's Wall. So we, and we have evidence for widespread literacy among people of all levels of society in the form of lead curse tablets. Again, back to the old lead, where people would take uh, pieces of lead, which they regarded as a, an inauspicious material, but also a convenient one for writing on, because it was soft, and they would write a curse on it, mm. and curse someone for stealing their coat, or for <laughs> or being rude about them in public, and then fold this uh, piece of lead up and throw it away, for us to discover thousands of years later, and see that people could write. Having said that, we mustn't imagine that all people able to write these things themselves because clearly many of these are written in the same hand and so there were people who knew what they wanted to say but had to go to someone who would write it out for them and if one looks at um, papyri where they exist in relative abundance and that's in very few places and as i highlight in the book the principal place that we found papyri is in egypt if one looks at this then There is a a belief that there is widespread functional literacy, but it's also the case that most things that are written out at length and in detail and would have legal effect were written officially by a scribe and were dictated by a lawyer. So there is a lot of formality and a lot of formulaic material that is preserved in these papyri, which do give us insights into functional literacy and widespread literacy in the Roman world. But they also give us insights into some limitations as well.
1: Excellent. Well, th- several times throughout the book, I I, su- I found myself succumbing to thinking about you know Monty Python jokes about aqueducts and roads, and you know I, I just was thinking about that relentlessly, and I felt so ridiculous. But um, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about some of the great cities, uh, and you know if they still exist today, what they became, like what people could see in their in the world now, with their very eyes, that is still some, you know, really important artifacts related to the time periods that you write about?
2: Well, I'd be very fortunate that, I mean, from very early on in my in my career, I grew up in a, in a Roman country in, in Britain, and I've lived in Roman cities, and most recently in the city of Lincoln, which was a great, it was the, the, the Colonia Lindum, it was a great Roman city. And so some of the Roman remains of Lincoln still exist. But over the course of my career, I traveled very widely and most of the photographs in the book, I took myself on trips to various places around the Roman world. Um, And although looking at the ruins of Roman cities is in itself a fascinating thing. And of course, being in beautiful countries and and enjoying um, looking at ruins is something that many of us enjoy regardless of whether we're professional historians or just fascinated by the past. But the most striking thing I I, I found um, and therefore recorded in the book is quite how central cities were to the way that people conceived of their world. And this is reflected very clearly in many, many mosaics that one sees across the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly today preserved in places like Jordan, which you wouldn't imagine to be central to the Roman world, but were. Hmm. And you can see there mosaics, which set out the worldview of people in small cities and how they placed their city in relation to others. And so in mosaic maps, one finds, for example, the famous Madaba map of the world, one finds Jerusalem centrally located as the holy city, but then a whole series of other cities and how they relate geographically, but also culturally and soci- and, and socially to and politically to uh, the world as it's seen from uh, Madaba, a small city which isn't that close to Jerusalem, but nonetheless conceives of itself in relation to the Christian world where power and, of course, uh, grace emanates from cities such as uh, Jerusalem. And even Within churches, one finds whole sets of mosaics where cities are set out in schemes where one sees their relationship to each other and how they're linked by the sea or by rivers and how they're linked um, to uh, greater cities because of them having metropolitan status within the church. And so Rome, New Rome, Antioch, Jerusalem, Alexandria were metropolitan uh, sees metropolitan bishoprics, which had authority over smaller cities. And they thought that all of these places conceived of their relationship to each other hierarchically, as well as culturally.
1: I I love hearing about traveling. Uh, I'm assuming you've done a huge amount of traveling. I'm wondering if you can talk about some of your favorite places in general that you've been, and then, you know, maybe offer me some must hit sites if I were to go on a new Rome travel adventure myself.
2: Absolutely. And of course, I, I, like everybody else, hasn't, I haven't had the ability to travel in in recent years. And so it's been a great um, uh, disappointment, of course, that so much has happened. And in the world, many of the places that one would love to go, of course, have been um, in trouble long before COVID hit the rest of Syria, for example, I only had a a chance to visit very briefly on a trip to Jordan. And since then, it's been off limits because of civil war in in Syria. Um, Of the the more obvious places that one could recommend when talking about a book called New Rome. Obviously Constantinople itself is um, the place to visit if you're interested in the Eastern Roman world at this time because there are so many wonderful monuments that still survive. And I do have a chapter in the book which really runs through things that you can still see. Um, and whenever you can see them, I try to provide a picture. And of course there are maps as well. Much of the heart of Constantinople, the great palace uh, doesn't exist over ground. Uh, But you can go to bars and restaurants and hotels in downtown Istanbul and the Sultan Ahmed district and near Hagia Sophia near uh, the Blue Mosque. And they'll have their own private excavations that they've done underground. So you can sit in subterranean bars and look at bits of the Roman past um, in the city of Constantinople. And of course, there is the formal excavation of the porticoed mosaics of the palace, which one can visit as well. Um, the walls of Constantinople are magnificent. Some of them have been over-restored um, in recent years, but nonetheless are there dominating uh, the, the skyline the, in the fringes of the city as they did um, 1,500 years ago when they were first built. And so Constantinople itself is is, is a wonderful place to visit. With that, its heart, Hagia Sophia, St. Sophia the Church, Cathedral Church, which has been in the news in recent years controversially because, of course, having been a, a museum for Um, some 70 years it was recently uh, reconverted into a mosque and there are many ways that one could say that that's unfortunate Um, but uh, uh, rather than becoming political about it and one could say that actually it's still open to the public and it's now free uh, for you to go in that that far fewer people will be admitted but it is free now to visit whereas in the past it it had become a very expensive place uh, to visit uh, if you were traveling through uh, Constantinople. So that would be the place to go. But if you wanted to see a wonderful uh, Roman and Byzantine city um, in Greece, for example, if you were going to Greece on holiday, then I would say that um, Thessaloniki is another wonderful city with many of its great late antique and late Roman and Byzantine structures very well preserved and very well looked after and cared for uh, very well. Uh, and so Thessaloniki is, is perhaps my favorite place to visit in the Byzantine
1: world. Fabulous list. Um, well, Dr. Paul Stevenson, I am really grateful for your, your time and this fabulous book, uh, and to your publicists and uh, team over at Harvard Press for making me aware of this fantastic book. And I'm wondering if you can you know, tell people, uh, remind people of like the title, like where they can find you if they want to follow along with your work or anything like that. Anything you'd like to promote here to sign us off today?
2: Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience. Thank you to anyone who listens and wants to buy the book. It's published by Harvard University Press called New Rome, The Empire in the East. It, it, it is formally part of a series. And so therefore, there are other great books in the series as well that you might want to pick up. Uh, written by colleagues like Michael Kulakowski of Penn State, who's written two books on the Western Empire at the same in the same period. Um, I don't have a large social media profile. I'm not really a, a tweeter and other things, but you can uh, check out some of my other work on academia.edu. If you search for Paul Stevenson, you'll find I've posted a few things on there. And uh, most recently, this book um, was exerted in Lapham's Quarterly. As I said, so if you look up Roman Pollution, Lapham's Quarterly, and my name, you would find that you're able to read uh, 15 or so pages of the book for free. Um, and it might tempt you to want to uh, buy the book, which you can do, I guess, at all the bookstores. And if you went to one that wasn't Amazon, that might be better.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I've had an absolute blast today. Thanks so much for talking to me,
2: Greg.